Romance, as Nick Perkins observed at the exhibition reception a couple of weeks ago, is the genre of storytelling, the weaving of stories around people, the generation of plot and of character against a backdrop made up of society and wider events. In other words, the romance, very simply, is the genre of fiction. It is the forerunner of the novel. The romance is the genre we still mostly read. It's quite difficult, then, to envisage a time in literary history when that kind of storytelling didn't exist, when narrative fiction, in the true sense, didn't exist. But in fact, there was such a time, and then there was a period, a few decades, in the 12th century, when the romance was born. And I want to talk about a few crucial moments in text from this time to illuminate that process. So, first, before the romance. One of the most important manuscripts in the exhibition, although not the prettiest, is Digby 86, which contains the earliest and best version of the old French epic, The Song of Roland. This poem dates from around 1100, just after the First Crusade, and it is full of crusading fervor. But it is set far in the past, in the year 778, when the famous Frankish Emperor Charlemagne's army was ambushed in the Pyrenees. In the poem, this minor skirmish is retold as an epic battle against a vast Saracen army, part of medieval Christendom's struggle with the Muslim world. But there is a twist. A traitor named Ganelon has told the Saracens that to defeat Charlemagne, they must kill Roland, the finest warrior in France. Ganelon has nominated Roland to lead the rear guard through the mountain passages away from the rest of the army, and he has told the Saracens exactly where to attack with their 100,000 men. Roland has been betrayed. So what is Roland to do as he sees this huge army approaching his comparatively small force of Frankish warriors, knowing that joining battle will mean death for all of them? He has a choice. He could blow his horn and alert Charlemagne and the rest of the Frankish army that they are under attack. The army might be able to return and save some of them, avoid the complete destruction of the rear guard. Roland's companion, Oliver, tells him to do just that. If they die, he says, then all of France will fall. Charlemagne will fall. He will never be able to fight another battle without them. But Roland refuses. He will not destroy his reputation in fair France, he insists. No mocking songs will ever be sung about him. And so they fight on, and they die, and they keep dying. This poem is filled with blood and pain and the sweaty and desperate exertion of men in heavy armour, hacking at each other, losing blood, losing limbs, breathing their last in dimming awareness and confusion. At one point, blood running into his eyes and blinding him, Oliver strikes Roland in error, or perhaps in error. You will never marry my sister, he says, when recalled to recognition. You have brought about the destruction of France. But the 20,000 Franks, as they die, slaughter many more thousands of Saracens, and the rest flee. Roland is the last man left alive. He looks on the slopes, covered in corpses, and he prays for all of his men. Finally, he blows his horn to alert Charlemagne to the loss of the rear guard. He turns his face toward the enemy, and he prays, and he dies. And the angel Gabriel comes down from heaven to carry his soul to God. And that is the center of the poem. Charlemagne hears the horn, and at length the army returns to the pass, and they discover the carnage, and he weeps over Roland's body. 
But then he prays to God to allow him to avenge this loss. And God answers his prayer and literally stops the sun in the sky, giving the Frankish army time to overtake the fleeing Saracens and to defeat them utterly. And then they defeat a second pagan army, and then they retake the whole of Spain for Christendom. So, this is fiction by any quantification of truth or reality, because it never happened. But it is not working as fiction. This poem is working as history. It was taken as the record of a historical event, and it is working as epic. It is an ideological work encompassing the nation of France and the heroic past of the Franks. We can note the irony that this poem was written down and preserved in England. But we can also consider this poem in terms of storytelling to see why it is not yet a romance. The poem does consider the personal choice and destiny of a man, Roland. He is faced with a dilemma of whether to call Charlemagne's army or not. His decision not to brings about the death of all 20,000 Franks and the best generals in the emperor's army. But despite what the traitor Ganelon told the Saracen leader, and despite his friend Oliver's angry fears for the fate of France, it does not bring about Charlemagne's failure or France's fall. Instead, with God's aid, the poem sees the triumph of Christendom over all of Spain, and Roland and the men who fought with him go straight to heaven, absolved of all sin. So what Roland demonstrates with his heroism is the unimportance of any individual in comparison with the higher cause of Christianity and the empire. This is the epic drive, the ideology for which hundreds of thousands of people have fought and killed and died throughout history. The idea that there is something greater than oneself to fight for and that the act of fighting, of killing and of dying for it is inherently a noble thing and one which will be recognized and rewarded. And so this poem differs fundamentally from romance, the story of the individual and society, because it asserts that the individual, however heroic, however admirable and memorable and glorious, must finally be sacrificed to a greater ideal. A second example, written 30 years later, now very close to the earliest romances. Geoffrey of Monmouth, also here to be seen in manuscript in the exhibition, wrote in the 1130s his Latin history of the kings of Britain, which he claimed was a translation of a very old Welsh book. No one now believes in that book. He does seem to have drawn on Welsh legends and the scraps of extant British history, but mostly he seems to have invented wildly. Once again, then, we have fictive material, but it is not functioning as fiction. This is history and legend, and it fuels the ideologies of national identity, inventing historical precedent by which to celebrate the cultural ideals of his own time. It is to Geoffrey that we owe the fame of the legendary King Arthur, greatest of the British kings, conqueror of half of Europe. And with Arthur came the vision of the greatest of royal courts, the center of all civilization and culture to which the finest knights and most beautiful ladies came, where there was feasting and games and dancing and music and ceremony and endless wealth and love. 
And so Geoffrey of Monmouth opened the door to the familiar setting for the Arthurian romance, the knight at court who rides out on a quest to prove himself and win his lady. But in fact, we must wait a few years. Geoffrey only opened the door. For him, and for his history, the peacetime court was not a place of narrative at all. His book is filled with battles and conquests, the rise and death of kings, inheritance and usurpation and loss, all of which culminates, of course, in the betrayal of Arthur by Mordred, which ends with Arthur's last battle and death, and the decline and destruction of British rule over the island. And when Geoffrey tells us of Arthur's court, he gives little more detail than I just gave you. In between battles, he says at one point, there were nine years of peace. At another moment, there were 12 years of peace. And then he gets back to the wars. Because in a history of this kind, there is nothing to be said about peacetime. Nothing happens in peacetime. And so what we learn from this is that, once again, here we have a genre in which the individual is unimportant. It is the fate of kings, nations, and peoples which are traced. Individuals matter only in as much as they contribute to these ends by heroism or treachery, by dying or living to conquer. But Geoffrey did plant a seed with Arthur's court. He tells us, amongst all the other high praise, that the ladies at the court were so virtuous that none of them would grant any man her love until he had proved himself in battle three times. Now, this is both trivial and profound. Geoffrey intended to make a conventional point, but in fact the implications of his statement are still reverberating through modern literary culture. The conventional, trivial point is this. In one of the more insidious aspects of society's control over individuals, female virtue is consistently made to involve the withholding of sexual favour from those who are not favoured by society. This is a simple effect of patriarchal family structures. Marriageable women are carriers of value in terms of blood and title, land and monetary inheritance, and political and familial alliances. As such, their sexual choices must conform to society's definition of worthiness, and women who choose otherwise are derided as sexually sinful. So Geoffrey's point, his trivial point, in saying that men had to prove themselves as warriors before any woman would grant them love, was only to assert that the women of Arthur's court were perfectly virtuous by the lights of that world and his own. But something happened to this statement, and it was crystallised in the translation of Geoffrey's Latin history into French, which was produced by a poet named Wace, perhaps 20 years later, in the middle of the 12th century. Wace said, in a pithy aphorism in the middle of his, of his very long poem, Pour amistier et pour ami font chevalier chevalerie. It is for love and for their beloveds that knights do knightly deeds. This is the profound change whose effects we can still see in the literature all around us. Wace says, not that ladies love those who are successful, but that men seek out success in order to please ladies. In so doing, he transforms the governing template of narrative literature, and he provides the foundations of one of the central aspects of romance, 
the love plot. Now, it's very difficult for us now here to recognise the fundamental strangeness of the idea that heterosexual love is the goal of life. We're surrounded by this idea. We have absorbed it. But it wasn't always so. Achilles, Odysseus, Beowulf, Roland, the original King Arthur, these men had no part of their identities defined by love. Aeneas, we recall, is forced to give up Dido in order to fulfill his destiny. Now, obviously love had always been around. Um, and indeed, Ovid himself very cattily tells us that when it comes to great old Virgil's Aeneid, he says, quote, nobody reads any of it apart from the bit where Dido gets Aeneas into bed. <laughs> no change there, then. Um, but love in all of literature had always been a distraction from the real business, a potential loss of manhood for the hero, a loss of place and of status in society, a danger to the fulfillment of his destiny. Now, suddenly, in the romances which followed the Arthurian court of Geoffrey and Wace, love suddenly took center stage. Masculine achievement is newly measured in the love of women. And this also means, therefore, that the matter of the romance is not any longer the nation or the faith or the people, as with the genres which preceded it. The matter of the romance is the individual. The success of the hero lies, for the first time, in his own quest for self-fulfillment, the acquisition of love, honor, reputation, status, wealth, position in society. And if a romance is to be tragic, then equally it is to be the tragedy of the individual, personal loss, grief, suffering, and death. And finally, this now means that the fictionality of narrative can at last be openly acknowledged and explored and played with. Fictionality can be embraced. The romance poets of the later 12th century no longer assert that you should read their narrative because it is historically true, as everyone did before them, but rather because it is beautiful and because it is worthy of reading, because it feeds the soul. Change in perspective is extreme. So I want to spend the remainder of my time talking through three different directions taken by the romance from this point, from the moment which brought the new focus on the love plot, a new attention to the individual, and a new play with the freedom of fiction. First, the logical extension of the love plot, which, I'm sorry to say, is tragedy. Because, I, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, um, all love either ends badly or ends in death. Um, as a matter of logic, therefore, the perfect lovers in literary history have always had to die in order to guarantee the perfection of their love. For us, that perhaps means Romeo and Juliet, or that bloke in Titanic. Um, for the 12th century, it meant Tristan and Iseu. This story came from Celtic legend too. It is of Mark, the King of Cornwall, who sends his best knight Tristan to Ireland to bring home his bride-to-be, the Irish princess Iseu. The two fall in love on the journey back. When they arrive, she is nevertheless married to King Mark, 
and so the lovers' fates are sealed. Here in the exhibition, you can see a fragment of the finest version of this story, which exists in many different guises and in multiple European languages. This version was written here in England, in French, around 1170, by a man known to us only as Thomas of Britain. Thomas's romance is an astonishingly acute psychological exploration of what it means to be in love and not to have the object of your desire. At one point, Tristan, in exile, makes the desperate and fateful decision to marry another woman, also named Isur, this time called Isur of the White Hands. Thomas delves into the psychological crisis which attends upon this paradoxical decision. Tristan quitta Isolde Guppir et l'amour de son cœur tolire. Tristan thought to abandon Isur and to cut out the love from his heart. By marrying this other Isur, he thought to free himself from the first. But if it had not been for the first Isur, he would never have loved the other one. But because he loved the first Isur, so he greatly desired to love this other Isur. Tristan's motivation is, in fact, even more complex than this short quotation can show. Knowing that Isur, Queen Isur, is married, he considers, he genuinely thinks about this, that perhaps by marrying himself, he will feel closer to her. Uh, but simultaneously, as you hear in the quotation, he also hopes to use this other woman, this other Isur, to forget her. But of course, he only wants the other woman because she is called Isur, because she reminds him of Isur. And so the hope of forgetting the real Isur of his desire is clearly painfully despaired of before he even begins. And indeed, he is never able to consummate his marriage, never able even to touch his wife. And in the end, his wife, Isur, who really is a pitiful character, she is in love with a husband who does not love her and will not touch her, brings about his death by lying to him as he lies wounded and dying that Queen Isur, whose arrival could save him, has abandoned him. Now, that was a very compressed summary, please forgive me, but the purpose of it was to illustrate that as soon as the love plot emerged in the second half of the 12th century here in England, it did so with astonishing psychological depth and complexity and with a grasp on the tragedy not only of the lovers themselves, but the tragedy of those around them. There's an amazing moment in Thomas's romance when he talks about the disparate experiences of all four of them. He talks about the tragedy of King Mark, that he loves a wife who does not love him, and the tragedy of his over white hands, that she loves a husband who will not touch her, and, and so on. So this is the love plot in all its flowering complexity right there at the beginning. Um, and the effect not only on the lovers, but on those whose lives they affect. So I like to tease undergraduates by telling them that there's nothing like Thomas of Britain's Tristan again until Henry James, more or less. Um, that usually upsets them. <laughs> My second example, the chivalric knight Lancelot. Now, he was invented in France by the celebrated poet Chrétien de Troyes, in probably the 1180s. And while he made his way over here very quickly in manuscript copies, he was not written about by English authors for another couple of centuries. Because Lancelot is, frankly, an imposition and a destructive commentary upon King Arthur's court. 
Lancelot is best known to us from Thomas Mallory's 15th century Mort d'Arthur, which is largely a faithful translation, adaptation, and heroic amalgamation from a variety of earlier works, many of them in French. Lancelot, then, is the finest knight in the world. No one can match him or defeat him in battle. Now, in Geoffrey Monmouth's history, which contains no Lancelot, no knight could surpass or challenge his king. Arthur has battles to fight, nations to rule, laws to give, rebels to subdue. Gawain and Cador and the rest of them, all the other knights of his court, are his generals, his right-hand men. But in the romance, which takes place in peacetime and which focuses on the exploits of the individual knight, the king has nothing to do. Indeed, King Arthur in the romance ceases to function as a knight at all. He merely presides over the court, a court from which knights must ride out in order to prove themselves and to win a reputation. And the finest of these knights riding out on his quests is Lancelot. So it's important to pause over the implications of this. Lancelot is the best knight. He is thus the one most worthy of love. King Arthur is no match for him. He is not competing with him as a knight at all. So we discover a logical flaw which is central, simply inherent, to the meritocratic structure of the love plot in the romance. For whom should the queen love if not the best knight? The adultery of the queen is, then, written into the deep structure of the Arthurian romance. So the romance of Lancelot is a gorgeous display of the love plot deployed as metaphor. Lancelot and Guinevere are the working out of a tension inherent to societies which combine inherited rights, monarchy, with some form of meritocracy, the recognition that some men are supremely talented. Here, the fact that the king's best knight will always be a better knight than the king himself. This conflict is, in literature, transhistorical. We think of Achilles and Agamemnon, perhaps. And in any real functioning society, or in history, in any society with governance structures, this is a manageable problem, um, even an unnoticeable one. But in the romance, there is no way of managing this eternal triangle, and it duly destroys the Arthurian world. There's yet more to be said about Lancelot as a function of the romance. If we consider what he is, and what he does, and what he does it for. Roland had fought for Christendom and for France. Beowulf fought for his people, Aeneas for Rome. Honor and fame, in each of these cases, was the byproduct of their devotion to these higher causes. In contrast, Lancelot fights for the reason Wace gave us. He fights to win Guinevere's love by winning honour and fame in repeated demonstrations of his chivalry and prowess. He does not fight for his king or his country or his faith, only to be the best and to be loved for it. His heroism exists then for himself alone, <laughs> indeed for itself alone. It's refined very close to the point of meaninglessness. Now, this too is in some ways transhistorical. It's Achilles' weakness, you remember, and it is the Greeks' real problem that Achilles fights only for himself. But Lancelot exists in a Christian world, a world which habitually and ubiquitously contrasted the worthlessness of worldly reputation with the eternal rewards of heaven. 
So in that context, his character exists on a sword's edge, condemned by his adultery and treachery, and then repeatedly rescued and promised heavenly reward by authors like Mallory, who long to celebrate chivalry and supreme knighthood. So the resultant image of this heroic knight simply flickers throughout the Middle Ages. Finally, a third route for the romance to take. Another manuscript here in the exhibition, The Romance of Horn, written in French in England around 1170. This must have been an amazing year. Um, by another man named Thomas, not the same one. This romance is a fascinating hybrid of generic material set in a distant English past. It concerns our hero, Horn, son of a king, whose country, some part of southern Britain, is invaded by Saracens when he's a child. His father is deposed and slain, the country conquered by pagans, and he and several young companions put to sea in a rudderless boat. They fetch up in Brittany and are welcomed into the king's court and brought up there. Horn is a vision of perfection. He is the finest knight, the most accomplished courtier, the most handsome man. And the king's daughter Rigmel falls in love with him, and there are exquisite scenes of her attempts to seduce him. Uh, but he insists that he must prove himself in battle first, and above all, that he must conquer the pagans and take back his kingdom. Pagans invade Brittany and he defeats them. Nevertheless, a traitor tells the king he's dishonored his daughter and Horn is forced to leave and take ship again. Then he arrives at the Irish court where again he's supreme among everyone and a second princess falls in love with him. This time he rejects her outright, although he does say very reasonably that if Rigmel has been unfaithful to him, then he will come back and marry her instead. Here in Ireland, he again defeats invading pagans, and then, finally, you'll be glad to hear, in the culmination of the romance, he returns to his own land, utterly defeats the pagans, seizes back his throne, marries Rigmil, and lives happily ever after. Now, I've called this a hybrid because it succeeds in having something of everything. It purports to be a history, a glorious pseudo-crusading past for the poet's own land, England, defeating Saracens and ruling well. It has the love plot and the beautiful depictions of courtly life. There are chess-playing scenes, harp-playing scenes, seductions, descriptions of feasts and games. And it has the individual's fulfillment of life. He regains his inheritance, he forges a reputation, gains love and wealth and kingship. And yet, it binds that individual's achievement to a higher cause his nation, his kingship, his people. And so this is a higher cause which no longer demands his sacrifice. He doesn't have to die for it. He has to live for it. It relies upon him. It, this country that he comes to rule relies upon his success for its success. Now that is a model with some staying power. So there are my three examples. We've seen the love plot honoured in all its complexity and tragedy in Thomas of Britain's Tristan. The fictional individual hero refined to the point of perfection, but also near meaninglessness in the Lancelot story. And in the Romance of Horn, the freedom of fictionality gently pushed back in favour of a combined genre, the hero whose individual exploits are plugged into the achievements of a society and its history. All of these hairs were running before the end of the 12th century. This, here to be seen on the pages of this exhibition, was the birth of romance. And the astonishing creativity of this time is still reverberating now. Wace's little line from 1154, 
pour remissier et pour remis fun chevalier chevalerie, captures the moment of creation. In one small assertion, it shifted the ground, transformed the expectations of storytelling, and sent narrative off in new directions, directions in which it is still traveling today. Thank you.